0: Hello and welcome to Next Gen Minds, the informal but informative podcast made for students by students. I'm your host Maddie Clark and together we'll start a much-needed conversation with students, experts and other special guests about mental health. We'll bust some myths, find out what are the best ways to manage our well-being and if all things fail we'll simply manifest our way to sanity. So without further ado let's start talking and make a change. Hello and welcome back to Next Gen Minds. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Danny Bowman. Um, Danny is a significant advocate for mental health awareness. Um, He is the head of campaigns at Parliament Street and vice chair at male voiced Um, and danny is determined to spread awareness and improve the lives of people with mental health disorders and in this podcast i'll be talking to danny about his own history with body dysmorphic disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder how he got help and what loved ones can do to help those who may have suffered from similar disorders Um, so danny thank you so much for coming on
1: it's my pleasure i'm excited to be on
0: now like you've done so much um for mental health awareness not only have you spoken about mental health policy on like media like sky news you're also a researcher for policy on mental health and also you're talking in schools and having an incredible website i'll put the links in the bio um <laughs> little plug um so i have so much to ask you but first i kind of wanted to start with what what started this drive for you what made you want to become such a highly impassionate advocate for mental health awareness in the first place.
1: Absolutely. Um, well, I think you just gave me a very, very kind, probably the kindest introduction I've ever been given. So uh, so, so, thank you for that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it, it all really started for me. My, my passion started when I was uh, 11 um, and I grew up in in Newcastle. Um, I think you're, you're in Durham, aren't you? So obviously quite close by. Um, and, you know, I was 11 years old. I was really happy. I played rugby. I was had lots of friends, you know, everything was pretty normal. And unfortunately, over the, the, the next six months, I, I started to develop uh, intrusive thoughts um, around um, kind of OCD ritualistic thoughts around uh, something bad would happen to my parents or if I didn't put my hand up in class or, or things like that that, that, that something bad would happen. And it completely changed my life. Um, Overnight, pretty much, uh, I became completely, um, completely paralyzed by this. And, uh, you know, my parents, ironically, are both mental health professionals um, and my sister's mental health nurse. So make of that what you will. But, um, you know, I, uh, I really lost everything. I felt like I started to lose my education. I started to lose my health and and i started to lose friends over this um partly because of because of everything was going on because i was cancelling things and 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 really struggling and as, as time went on um it became really really acute and i was lucky to originally go to the maudsley hospital in london um to get support i need because there wasn't any sport available locally uh for what i was experiencing um but then as time went on, I moved to an in, inner a city school um, and OCD um, kind of became less significant, but it kind of developed into an obsession around the way I looked. So I moved to this new school and I felt that, you know, everyone looked better than me. Everyone was more intelligent than I was. And I felt the only way to really fit in was to was to change the way I looked. And, and because of my predisposition to to OCD, I started to develop um, anxiety around the way I looked. So I started to spend hours in the mirror kind of looking and scrutinizing my skin, scrutinizing my weight, scrutinizing everything. Um, and that became more serious even than the OCD because you know, I was spending so much time pulling myself apart and scrutinizing the way I looked that I actually uh, unfortunately dropped out of education at 16. And that was devastating for me and spending up to 10 hours a day, just focusing on your appearance um, was, was was horrendous. You know, I was my worst enemy. And I remember waking up at 6 a.m. in the morning and 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 first thing I did was spend two hours in the mirror. Then I'd go and take a range of photos of myself, try and scrutinize every last bit. I'd get rid of all my food because I thought if I didn't, then I wouldn't, wouldn't, it wouldn't be able to build muscle. I wouldn't be able to, to kind of have that physique that I was seeing um uh, you know on, on on things like social media um and after six months you know I'm not embarrassed to say. I think it's really really important we talk about these issues you know I just remember thinking there's no way out um I remember think feeling that whatever happened next you know would be worse than what happened before so I, I didn't see a way out and I also interestingly felt like I'd failed because I hadn't achieved this perfected image of myself that I, that I wanted to achieve. So I was, I was devastated in that respect, too. And I tried to take my own life, you know. Um, and that was, that was, a, that was probably, a, you know, the darkest moment of my life. Um, but luckily, I got rushed to A&E um, and got the support I needed. And I'll never forget what, what my, my psychologist said to me the first time in my first session. She said, sometimes you have to hit rock bottom. Before you start moving up again, and and that was my rock bottom. But from that point, the only way was up. So that that's some good news there. And yeah, and then I I went back to the Maudsley again. I was a I was a a loyal customer, um, and went back and 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 got the got the support I needed, and, and they were incredible. But yet again, I had to travel to London <laughs> every for, for twelve sessions, um, and and things slowly started to get better. But that experience really. Identified to me not only the importance of speaking about mental health, but the importance of making sure that there's, there's the, the, the policies that that support people with early intervention, that support people with um getting access to, to good quality care, um, and making sure that they can go on
0: and, and, and live their lives. Well, so firstly, I just want to say thank you. Thank God that you're still here with us today. I'm, I'm so glad thank that you. I can be talking to you um and I think it'd be a proof for everyone who in in this moment doesn't feel like there's mm. a way out your testament of there is and not only is there a way out but Absolutely. that that you can go on and do these amazing incredible things and help other people as well um so I just want to say for all our listeners thank you um for being 100%. that example um and I also wanted to Ask you, I mean it is amazing that you have been surrounded by all like you say, your mum and dad are both in the mental health profession and your mm. and your sister. This can happen to absolutely anyone. And it's and absolutely. it's that's why it's so important that we do talk about it like we are now. Um so I just want to thank you again for opening up as well. Um, so I was just gonna ask you if you could maybe because i i kind of go off on many many limbs if we can focus a little bit because otherwise i'm going to be asking you millions of questions um if we could go back to the beginning when you were Mm. 11 and you said it started with ocd um was that something that only started showing signs when you were 11 was it and you said it was sudden do you know if there's anything that triggered Mm. it or um how did was it more of a slippery slope how did it really start to manifest itself
1: yeah, so you know, I, I mean, it's really hard. I think, even not just for for the sufferer, but for parents to really understand what is mental health, what is mental health. Sorry, what is mental illness, um, and what is just kind of childhood intricacies of of, of the way they are. Um, and you know, I remember as a kid, I I was a I was a big to my dad's dismay. I was a big Arsenal fan. Um, my brother would be not, very happy. Not, your brother would be very, well, please someone then. My dad, on the other hand, was a big Newcastle fan, so he didn't quite understand. But, um, but you know, I remember kicking footballs repetitively into the net and then having to go back and get it and then start again in the exact same place and then kick it again and kick it again and kick it again until it felt okay. Uh, I remember another time when I was about nine years old and I was running around the field and I had to run around the field repetitively until it felt right. Um, and this was kind of a big farmer's field and, uh, and there was, there was certain signs like that, that, that suggested that it was, there was a, there was a disposition there to potentially suffering from it. Um, but sometimes I think there's no rhyme or reason to this. I think, you know, as much as I wouldn't have wanted to suffer from a mental health problem and wouldn't have wanted to go through what I did, um, I do think it's made me stronger and I, I do think it's something that there's doing. And, and looking back, I think I think one of the major issues for me and why it really got, became worse was, was probably because it wasn't identified early enough, um, but also the way people around me responded. So I think my parents obviously were very supportive. Um, they, they wouldn't be very good medical <laughs> professionals if they were, um, but beyond that, you know, even in my education, I started to fall behind. I started to get as, you know, probably have to start the record at Chantry Middle for for detentions um, on, you know, because of my ritualistic behavior and because of my frustration and because of everything I was going through. Um, And I think that just made things worse, that lack of understanding, that lack of someone coming up to me before I went to the Morsley and saying, look, you're suffering from a mental health problem. This is not you. This is what you're suffering from. Um, and we can help and put things in place to to support you, but but none of that was there. Um, and I think that was one of the hardest things.
0: Mm. And when you say ritualistic behaviour, I mean, for mm. our listeners that don't really know what OCD is, or like, or kind of have that, the all they know is that people would say, "Oh, I have OCD when they work to keep things tidy." They're you know, the classic mm. um, stickler behind that. But um, could could you explain a little bit more in terms of what? OCD actually is, and like what, how it impacted you when. I you mentioned the fact that you couldn't concentrate at school, or you fell behind. But um, more specifically, how, like how that came about, like what were those obsessive ritual ritualistic traits?
1: Absolutely. Um, so it's so in relation to the the traits. I always like to describe it as like a vicious circle. So if you imagine a circle, you kind of get this thought in your head, and and in my case at that age, it was that your parents will be in a car crash tonight if you don't do this thing. And then the the ritual would follow. So it'd be like, for example, in in my case, it might be if you don't put your hand up 10 times in class and interrupt 10 times or something like that, um, then this bad thing will happen. Mm. And the way OCD works is when you do the ritual, you feel feel relief, you know, Um, you feel huge relief in the short term. But then in the long term, obviously, the anxiety goes up every time. And the mistake I made is I kept doing the rituals Um, and then the rituals kept getting more prominent. So imagine somebody threatening you continuously with the worst possible things you can imagine. And you're expected to respond to that by doing things that inevitably are gonna, gonna, you know, uh, um, you know, stop you from living a normal life. Um, that's how I would describe OCD in, in, in is, is probably terribly, but in layman's terms, uh, that that's how I would describe it. Kind of having, you know, someone threatening, like a bully, like a bully, I'd describe it as.
0: And it's, it's impossible to get rid of a bully that's real, not alone, one that's in your own head.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um,
0: but so with the OCD, um, that progressed when you were in secondary school um into BDD but body dysmorphic disorder. Mm. Um, are the, how are the two are the two highly related? Can you are they, does it kind of naturally lead into one another? Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. So so um, obviously I, I'm sure many, many psychologists and psychiatrists are gonna are going to dispute my my interpretation. But um, what I would say is that obviously the basis of OCD is is obsessional behavior. Um, and you do things over and over again, hoping that it'll make you feel relaxed and relieved. In, in relation to body small sort, it's very similar in the sense that you're doing repetitive behaviors to try and make yourself feel better about the way you look. So in relation to they're kind of part of the same grouping, if that makes sense, yeah. um, not everybody who suffers from OCD will go and suffer from BDD, or vice versa. Uh, but in my case, because of that added focus, especially when I went into my teenage years on, o- on um, the way I looked, the kind of traits from the OCD kind of transferred over to the way I looked, um, and, and the rest is history.
0: And how how does it impact, I mean, you you touched on it a, a bit before when you were discussing why, what, what drove you to talk about mental health. Um, mm. But having suffered from BDD, what kind of impact did it have on your life and because I don't I I think for someone who doesn't have it quite Mm. difficult to understand um how quite how severely it does completely take over uh, your your life
1: absolutely and just to just to note on what you just said I, I think it's it is very it's very difficult illness to understand because on the face of it you know if you saw someone constantly looking in the mirror all the time and checking themselves out, you'd probably think, wow, they're vain." um, but BDD is the complete opposite to vanity. It's, it's, it, I hated myself. I, I looked in the mirror and I thought, I look horrific. Everything about my appearance is wrong. And you tend to, to scrutinize to the point where it's, it's takes over your entire life. All the hours of the day are taken over by you focusing on this, Perceived flaw or perceived flaws, um, and if that's taking over your life, you're not engaging in social activities or things. And in my case, it got quite severe. It was quite a severe case in the sense that I became housebound.
0: Um,
1: I I didn't leave the house because I was worried that if I left the house, I would actually scare people. So the way I looked would be terrifying to others, um, and and obviously I didn't want to do that. So. Yeah, it was, I mean, like OCD, it's like having your biggest critic in your head mm. um, that is constantly pulling you apart. And in the same sense, you're you're pulling yourself apart. I think what makes BDD slightly worse, in my opinion, is that it is very much focused on you. It is your appearance. It is the way you look. It's how you feel about yourself. And, and I think it took a while because of the strain of BDD, not even just when I was living with it but after it to kind of gain the confidence to then you know start to re-socialize start to get back involved in education and 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 everything like that because of the the impact it had on me
0: and when when it was starting to slip into when you started to like be homebound you couldn't go to school you had to drop out at 16 were you Mm -hmm. um were your parents looking to get help for you or what was anything being done at the time to help you understand what's going on? I think,
1: you know, even for my, even for my parents as, as, as mental health professionals, I think it was BDD, BDD is not a well-known illness. Um, and I think what they kind of, because I'd suffered from OCD before they kind of connected the two and thought, well, it's, you know, it's his mental health, you know, we need to support mental health. And I, I I honestly cannot thank my parents enough. They, they are the most tolerant people in the world um, to have me as a son. But, uh, you know, they are they were very supportive over the six months. And I think from their point of view, it's always been health before everything else. Um, and, and that's the approach they took. But, you know, I, I, I think the problem was that there wasn't any real help available, you know? And when someone can't leave their own home either, mm um it's quite difficult or doesn't want to be seen by others outside their immediate family you know how do you respond to that um it's 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 quite difficult uh and you know because of that lack of support in relation to to care and things like that I, I I became more unwell
0: it's, it is, it's a nightmare, I mean, at the moment, I know, I'm sure you know, you'll be really into yeah. all of it, but the, the waiting list, the lack of resources available for mm. people that suffer with mental illness or disorders, mm. um, mental health disorders. Um, if, if looking back at it now, if you could change what like happened um, or how any intervention that would have been available, what, what would you wish was available for you then?
1: I think, you know, outpatient support, really, um, you know, it's, it, anything that that would relieve me. I mean, if we're talking about even before the illness or even just at the start of the illness, I think prevention mm. um, plays a big role. I think part and parcel of the problem was I didn't understand what it was, so I didn't address it. Um, and if I'd had that knowledge, I would have been able to address it early, but I think the main issue was the availability of specialist support uh, for for these illness, and not just BDD, but even OCD, a common anxiety disorder. You know, levels of support was was slim. Um, so I would want to boost boost them services, not rely on them, but boost them services um, to, to meet the to meet the need. Which which I I you know I think we need a more. You know, sure. Yeah, right now, <laughs> right now, uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then with the um, so I'm going back to the OCD. I, like I said, I, no, I do tend to just jump around a bit. Hand great, out the window. Um, <laughs> um, but with the OCD, also talking about prevention, um, mm. do you think there needs to be more like education surrounding these different dis- like disorders? Um, so children themselves, not just their parents, but themselves can understand and also even classmates because when you're young in primary school and secondary school there's they mean words and you joke around and it's meant to be yeah. a quote-unquote banter um but yeah. things children say especially if they understand something can be really mm. really hurtful and have more do more damage than expected um Absolutely. so do you think that education might need to be increased
1: Absolutely. So, um, not to go on a, a policy rant here, mm-hmm. um, but uh, but but I I am a big advocate of, of of community hubs. So you know the idea of having a network of hubs in communities that bring together all education, health interventions, um, employment support, all of these things together. But for young people, that could be really useful because it's 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 it, you know bringing together all of the specific parts of their lives and they can interconnect they can talk with each other they can share information I think that's one of the other issues around sharing of information Um, and they can get a full kind of holistic understanding of things and there's somewhere where they can go that's not necessarily medical but somewhere they can go to seek support from a range of different a range of different services and I think implanting them into local communities would be would be really really beneficial they've done it in Australia which is is, has, has been a success and i think it could be could be a success here um but you know i there's no easy answer to this um and you know as much as i'd want to blame someone for everything i went through it's it's difficult it's, it is really really difficult but i think as you rightly said raising the awareness bringing together different services of a young person's life um can be really beneficial when people
0: are working together instead of working in silos. Mm, absolutely, I, I, I completely agree. Um, and then with uh, now you've you're on the other side. You are studying. You are studying a PhD specifically in mental, mental um, health policy, which is incredible. Um, yeah. And you are what would say uh, like, the, like the light at the end of the tunnel. You're you're kind of you've arrived. Yeah. Um, what helped you going from rock bottom how did you get from let's say rock bottom's a and here you are b how do you get from a to b what, what were the main things that really helped you get through
1: yeah um i think i think to start uh just to say as well that that it's it's never it's never in my experience it's never been a to b i would say yeah it's already always been a to y and back to b and then everything so one thing to make clear i think from my experience is it was never i recovered and then things were bright and wonderful mm. um things did go back and forth um you know i had a couple of relapses but things did get better eventually and i think that's the message to your to your listeners as well that things do get better you just got to keep going mm. um but in relation to to my story i uh you know i i came out of therapy i hadn't you know i didn't really know what to do to be honest I'd, I'd kind of been um medicalized and i'd gone through that process and then i'd come out and i was like well what's next mm. um and i actually started working with a, a charity that's no longer in inform but it was called fixes um and i raised i started a campaign on mental health and to raise awareness of body dysmorphic small disorder. Um, disorder and to my amazement the the, the campaign went viral Um, and quite unfortunate, but I was named as the, as, as, as a selfie addict. I, I don't know if you've probably seen it, uh, because I took a lot of photos around my BDD. Um, but it did enable me to reach out to a wider audience. Um, you know, everything from, um, ABC in, in New York to, to this morning in, in, in Britain. So it enabled me to, to reach out to a wider audience. And that really stimulated my, my want to bring about change. And I knew I wanted to to get involved in, in, in mental health policy and some factors, but at that point I had no qualifications to my name. So I needed to, to go back. Um, so I started um, at an adult learning center, at an education center, um, got my GCSEs, then, uh, then went to um, do my diploma. And then from that went to the University of York and studied social policy. Um, and now I'm here at the University of Liverpool doing a PhD. Uh, so, you know, it's been really beneficial and through all that work, I was able to, you know, to, to get involved in think tanks. And, and, and from that, I really was lucky enough to be given an opportunity by a range of people. And, and, and they're the people, you know, who I have got to thank for, for, for giving me this support and, and, and get, you know, enabling me to, to campaign on this issue. Um, I was able to kind of generate some, generate a voice and, uh, and now it's fantastic to see you know thousands of people out there like yourself who are doing fantastic work and and really engaging people in mental health um and I think all of us as, as, as one are going to are going to bring about change eventually eventually we will we will fingers crossed yeah.
0: <laughs> absolutely well honestly, I think it's firstly incredible that you went back to education i mm. uh, I don't know if I would have to have the willpower, but your willpower is incredible to carry on and keep on going. That it
1: took time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's seriously dedicated. And it shows that if you have a passion for something, you, you want to get some, you know, you're inspired, which you were, how how far you can go. So firstly, congratulations. That is Thank incredible. You. Thank you. Um, and what I was gonna on to ask is that for those people who know of the loved ones the the friends and family and especially for family members who are not educated in mental health like your parents were Mm. what um what kind of signs would you advise to be for them to be looking out for um for ocd and also a bdd and also like for the depression and also suicidal thoughts i know there's four huge things I go get tip. but um, I, yeah. what kind of key signs would you advise them to look out for and what they do see those key signs what what do you think they can do to help
1: absolutely so I think um t- t- to look at mental health as a whole generally I, th- I think you're looking for changes in behavior so you know your child or you know your brother or you know your friend quite well and you know what they're normally like. If you see, start to see changes in the way they uh, they move, maybe they're becoming disengaged with things. Maybe they're um, dropping certain activities that they used to love or, you know, not, not being as sociable as they want. You know, it's about having that. They're the signs that you've got to kind of look for where people are kind of doing something that they wouldn't normally do or do, doing behaviors that they wouldn't normally do. Um, in relation to... To kind of OCD, BDD, and depression, or all of them. Um, I, I think specifically with BDD because of the body image. If someone's spending extra time on their appearance, if someone is becoming agitated when they have a flaw within their appearance, or if someone if, if the defect or perceived defect is taking over their life to a point where they're not engaging as they usually do, then I would I would definitely definitely want to want to have a discussion with them. Um, and the same goes with OCD. If people are doing intricate behaviours that are out out of the normal of what they would normally do, then it's about having that conversation. But I think the main thing, if people recognise these symptoms, try to have that discussion, but be patient. Be patient with the person because it's it's never going to be the case, you know, kind of idea that, you know, you lie someone on a bed and they'll tell you all your problems kind of thing that it will take time. And I think it's developing, creating an environment in which they can discuss these things. So make sure that they're aware that you're there, you're here to discuss things and you move forward from there. Um, and also, if it's, if it's a parent and you want to identify services, support, there's a load of charities out there. They're even just you having an informal conversation with them can be really useful in, in offering useful tips and guidance. Um, and of course, you know, services, um, you know, traditional NHS services are obviously the great, um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be realistic with, with your, your viewers. They are, they are, you know, there is a long waiting list. Um, so really boosting that support, um, through charities, um, through, um, informal support networks, all of these different things can, can, can really um, s- support as well. And make sure also if your child's in school, make sure the school knows about it. Make sure they're aware because schools are, are, have moved a long, a long way forward since I was at school. So I think, you know, they will try and support your child as best as possible. Um, but yeah, th- th- those would be my kind of key advice to them Uh, i'm sorry for the 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 realism about services but you know i i think it's important that people are aware there are alternatives out there so if you can't get on if you're waiting six months you don't have to just wait six months in silence there are charities out there um, and there is support available
0: absolutely thank you danny i think that would be really beneficial for our listeners um, because you have to be, you have to be realistic because you can't have these high expectations and then go it's find those services when unfortunately um, there is limited, limited um, availability. But like you said, there's so much out there um, that so much more help out there. That's actually, if you look, you'll be able to find loads of websites and loads of charities. Um, Absolutely. I am going to dive back into, before I go on to asking you a bit more about your research and policy, um, I'm going to go delve a little bit back um, in, back to BDD um, just very quickly. um, because I have Mm -hmm. a few questions myself when I was, when I was researching into it, because I didn't really understand BDD. um, Mm -hmm. And my first initial thought about BDD was that it's an eating disorder. Um, mm. But I soon found out that that's a misconception. Um, mm. That in itself is a separate thing to eating disorders. Um, and just because I would, I really want to help our listeners kind of understand PDD a bit more. So that if they, they're they more aware of exactly what it is as an illness in order to help people. Um, mm. Would you be able to explain it? I know I'm asking those loads of like scientific questions I <laughs> um, this is, your explanation would be perfect because I'm I, I don't have a PhD I don't have any um, like education in, in mental health illnesses specifically yeah. but um, what would what would you what's the main difference between BDD and ET disorders and I mean I'm guessing the two really do and to link but they're two separate things.
1: I, I think in many ways I mean in the sense that they're both focused on a person's body. Um, is is obviously number one. There's a connection there. Um, I, I think I think the thing to remember about BDD is it's not always focused on weight. Um, what probably confuses certain people in many ways is probably I mean in my experience, for example, I had I had a uh, an obsession with the how much I weighed by the weight, but it was part of BDD if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, it's in relation to to eating disorders. The main focus is normally around you know lose um it can be around kind of their weight or what they have but i'm trying not i'm I'm being very careful not to oversimplify eating disorders either Mm -hmm. um but i think body dysmorphic disorder is very much kind of focused on the the way people think about specifically about their appearance and then the activities they do around that in relation to eating disorders it can be a bit more complex shall we say in relation to um why people do that you know eating disorders are not just simply normally sometimes about the way people look they can be about control they can be about um a range of different issues um so I think that's probably the best way I can simplify I'm sorry, sorry. I, that that was probably the worst the worst attempt at trying to define the two, um, but they are different. They are different diagnoses, um, and yeah, informed by the DSM, they are different diagnoses. <laughs>
0: well, no, you did much better job than me. I I was trying to explain it to one of my friends the other day, and they got so confused. So you did way you did way better than me. Um, and with with BDD, what 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 can people start because it's quite hard to. Stop obsessive thoughts. Um, mm. what, how, how did you even start to unpick that? Because it, it, for me, that I, I it must have been incredibly difficult to break the pattern, yeah, especially when you're taking standing in the mirror for two hours every day and taking millions of pictures. How, how do you break those patterns?
1: Absolutely, I mean, uh, you know. Um, I think the support I got from the, the Morsley was great. And one of the things they actually did to me, which I still do now actually, is I do the big mirror exercise. So um, what I used to do when I would I was suffering from BD is zoom in on my floor. So even with my camera, zooming in on the mirror, going right up to the mirror, looking at my appearance, picking out small minuscule things um, and making them into something big. So what I do now is I stand back from the mirror. I look at myself as a whole. Um, And then you realize that people don't actually look at you that closely. They don't notice these really small flaws that you might have. The the example I give is someone might have a spot. And in relation to when I was suffering from BD, I'd zoom in on the spot and look really closely and know that's really red, that's really this, that's really that. You know, it was like I was trying to explain the spot, the parameter of the spot. Um, But actually when I stepped back, I realized, wow, it's so small. It's it's so insignificant. Um, and that really helped put things into perspective. And another very funny example um, it was actually, it was therapy, but it was funny, <laughs> um, it was when I was walking around. Um, so the Maudsley's based in a place called Lewisham in, in, in London. And they got me to mess up my hair, mess up my uh, clothes, mess up everything, and then walk down a busy high street in London. And then after it, they said to me, you know, they monitored my anxiety levels going down. And obviously I was at a, you know, I'm trying to think of the, the metric, but I think I was at a 10, should we mm-hmm. say, when I first went. And um, and by the end of it, I was at a four. Because what I realized at the end, they asked me, they said, Well, what changed? And 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 what you realize when you're looking around at people, people are rushing past you, people are not looking at you. The focus is not on you. Um, and you know, I, I small experiments like that, whilst they may sound insignificant or even not even medical, although I'm sure there's a lot of evidence to prove they are, um, they were really useful because it kind of made me feel like, okay, nobody's looking at my appearance. I'm spending hours on this it's It's not as important as I think it is and that, and that really helped break the pattern and And one final thing, because i'm 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 rambling on here. I would say is getting involved in an activity that is not focused on yourself. Mm -hmm. So the work I do now is not focused on me. It's not about me. It's not about anything, the way I look. It's not about um, who I am as a person. It is about talking about an issue that affects thousands, if not millions, well, millions of people around the world. So, you know, taking that kind of campaign approach enabled me to, to kind of stop focusing on myself and focus on other people. And, and you know, one of the things I love now is hearing other people's stories, um, listening to to what they've been through and how they've recovered or, or things like that. And and, and that's what really k- keeps me fulfilled um, beyond the BDD.
0: Absolutely. I mean, thank you for sharing your story. I, I'm sure that all our mm-hmm. listeners will be so, so, so happy that you've come on. I obviously, so I've got questions and I'm so sorry, we'll, we'll probably be another...
1: It's okay. No, no, go no, for it. Go for
0: uh, it. Yeah. Sorry for keeping you. Um It's not a problem. <laughs> um my last question about this before we go on to talk about your um your research is um about male voice and um this like the general stigma that is around male mental health um mm. um illnesses mental illnesses. Um did you feel when you I mean when you're experiencing these to um, well, when you went through your, your mental health illness, um, did you feel like there was a stigma surrounding male mental health, and like, how how pervasive is that, and how can you even how do you even start tackling that? Sorry, those are three really good questions. Yeah.
1: But... no, they're are really good questions. Really, really important. Um, I think from my experience, um, it was really difficult. So I was a I was a an, a rugby player. And you can only imagine walking into a changing room and saying to your 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 friends, lads, I'm I'm suffering. I'm worried about a spot on my face, or I'm worried about my weight, or you know, do I look fat in this? You can imagine the response Mm. from a a group of rugby lads. So that that was difficult. Um, And then speaking to them about it, trying to even after I recovered from BDD, trying to speak to them about it, and trying to kind of help them understand what I was going through was was really, really difficult. Um, And I think there's, unfortunately, there is still that stigma. Um, What we've definitely seen over the past five, six, seven years, and I'm not including, I'm not going to blame Love Island completely for this, um, but, you know, we've definitely seen more pressure be placed on men to look a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, And whilst the pressure's gone up, the support and the awareness hasn't, has remained stagnant around it. Um, Now I'm I'm well aware that women have experienced this pressure for centuries and they, you know, they've done a brilliant job experience and going through this. And I know that, but I think men are very new to this, Mm. of that kind of pressure to look a certain way and pressure to be a certain or mold yourself. And there is no services really to support men, Um, specifically in the NHS. There's no specific services to support men with body image problems. Um, And this is where Male Voice comes in. Um, And some other, I'm gonna obviously mention all charities. BEAT is is also a wonderful charity that does does some great work with men too. Um, But Male Voice is very specific. It focuses on, on supporting males and offering them an environment with other males where they can have them discussions together around their illnesses uh, with a facilitator present. And we've, we found that really beneficial in kind of destigmatizing and creating a safe space for men where they can talk about these issues. And what's quite surprising is the people coming forward and the people talking about these different things are not your what you'd traditionally think of some a man with an eating disorder look like. They're, they are sports people. They are you know, um, academics, They are there are a range of people who are coming forward and, and, and getting the support that they need. Um, and I can tell you every single one of them are grateful they got the support. And that's what we need to encourage men to do from this point is not only raise awareness of it in, in the community, but also making sure that there, there is the services available within the charity sector or... Fingers crossed in the NHS, you never know. Um, for men to, to, to really get the help um, that they need. But I, I understand, I think to any men or oh man listening to this, um, I understand it's really hard. I really do. You know, I've, I've been through this. Um, but if you are struggling, please, 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 either get in, trust, in, in touch with Male Voiced um or get in touch with with some of the other great charities out there including beat um and 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 start the conversation because that's that's going to be one of the things that that's really going to help you move forward and there is really no shame in it there isn't um and uh, we're here to listen
0: absolutely thank you thank you so much danny um i hope everyone that's listening can hear, hear those words and actually take someone because you're, you're mm. no one's alone um and thankfully for, for people like you that come and kind of set up these amazing charities it means that there's only a phone call or a click away um, from help. So thank you very much. Um moving on to my last two questions, and then you're free from, from my torment. I- I'm enjoying <laughs> it, it's great. Um so recently uh you attended a roundtable discussion at 10 Downing Street um to discuss young people and mental and mental well-being. Um what what kind of key takeaways did you have from that roundtable discussion that you could like maybe listen on or, or um, also talk about the ten year plan that's also going to be implemented? What what kind of changes are they going on in in Parliament at the moment and policy?
1: Absolutely absolutely no no i think that's that's a good question i think number one um there is a consultation open right now uh for anyone in this country to to submit evidence to um on the the government website for the 10-year plan um i'd encourage you if you have a spare hour or netflix is broken down Mm -hmm. that you go on it and you uh you uh you fill it in because we really you know the government really wants to hear from you um and i know some very hard-working civil servants that would love to hear from you too um so please do um in relation to the meeting it was a fantastic meeting um there was there was some great voices there there was there was two young people there who shared their experiences uh, which were incredible um I, w- I was in awe of them um and there was a range of people there from health experts to to um to, to more policy-based individuals and really the main takeaway from it is I, this is going to be so ungratifying but the main policy takeaway from it was that we need to do something <laughs> okay we, we cannot go on the, the way the way things are and and you know the the, the person leading it um obviously I, I can't mention the person's name but the person leading it is 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 i want people to know is truly determined to, to give a voice and to really improve this issue for, for people. It, it is recognized in 10 Downing Street that mental health is a major issue that needs addressed um, The other specific element that was discussed, obviously things like, you know, we, we want to look at how we can diversify services, make them more innovative, make them more appropriate for specific groups of people. I think that's really important too, um, that one size does not fit mm. all. Um, and, and, and more importantly, how we can provide a range of different interventions, not just the interventions that we see in the NHS, but a range of different interventions and work with a range of stakeholders to provide interventions, have a more holistic understanding of mental health. Um, you know, I've spoken in my stuff around education and things like that, and, and, the importance of awareness and the importance of uh, away from necessarily the medical frame. Um, so there was a range of things discussed. I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm trying my best to to kind of say as much as anything, but I'm not sure what I can and can't say. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm I'm trying to dance around the issue slightly, but it is. Um, I think the main takeaway is 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 this this is recognised. Mm. You know, your voices are heard. And um, there is much work going on, going on behind the scenes to, to improve things. I, I think in relation to also the, the, the plan, one of the things that really comes out is the importance of user voices or voices of people in the community, not in any position of power, but people in the community who are experiencing these difficulties. Um, because in my opinion, and I know a lot of people's opinion. Uh, uh, I mean, they are they are very much the experts. They know what it's like to to experience a mental health problem. They know what it's like to, you know, have to drop out of school. You know, they know what it's like to to to, to not be able to get into you know to get support that they need. So they're the kind of people we want to listen to. If you if you could put even if you can put a link I don't know if you can put a link on, on on the thing but do put a link to the consultation because um it's kind of the first step to really to really changing things um and yeah I hope that was okay yes, sorry no. I, I danced around <laughs> the issue slightly you, you Brilliant politician um,
0: politician's job no you did you, you did <laughs> something is being done which is always always exactly what you want to hear and that being yeah. recognized which is brilliant um which I think is a huge step like this Absolutely. is being highlighted and bigger highlighted. This is a problem. Um, yeah. And the, the ten year plan, the consultation. I'll definitely put the link on to um, in the bio of this of this podcast because that sounds mm. like it's an incredible incredible opportunity to get your voices heard and also help policy makers. You know, make the right the right calls. Um, yeah. In terms of this general, uh, pol- I mean, you the research that you do. In the mental health. Um, What are the most, have you found the most effective ways, like preventative measures for mental health um, illnesses? What, if you could do, if you're in charge of the whole entire mental health of this country (laughs) and you can put some things in place that would be most effective, what three things would you do? That's really hard. I'm so sorry you can take your time. (laughs)
1: Yeah, no no, no. I am um, I am um, well I, I've already perfected my attempt at being a politician just before that so I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll try and do it again but no, number one I'd say I think community hubs are really important for prevention I think the, the creation of of uh hubs in in communities where people can go to and they can access services um a range of services that are connected um is is really really useful because we know mental health is not just a, a medical issue it's a social issue and it's a it's it's also a, a biological issue as well. So we need to we need to bring services together. That would be number one. Uh, number two, um, I think uh, public health campaigns are really important. So I talked about men there. Um, I think raising awareness of, of male mental health is really important. Um, specifically, it's probably the one area where men are less represented than women. So um, we we kind of need to really boost that um a, a, as well um, i think also i think we need to look at the role different non-traditional providers of support for example colleges universities universities being a big one um, can what support they can provide to their students um, and i think we we need to link in with these non-traditional environments because to be honest most of your time is not spent in a in a medical facility or a a you know a, a with a support worker. It's normally spent with you know your friends or in university or in lectures or in school or whatever. So I think making the environments places where mental health can be discussed and making them environments that are that are available for support as well, um, I think, would be really beneficial. And and um, this is this is probably more more for for my call to action, but you've got to remember mental health costs the economy. I think the recent report said 117 billion pounds a year. Mm. Okay. In lost productivity, absenteeism and and other areas. These interventions are not just about improving people's lives. And I agree, we need to do that. That is 100% the point I want to stress, improving people's lives. But for anyone who's not certain, if you want to improve economic output and input, we need to invest in mental health because that, that is how we're gonna be able to, 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 to move the conversation forward on this. And these preventative measures that I've just alluded to can do that. They will deliver uh, good results. So that is my message um, to anyone who is for some reason not convinced by just the improving people's lives point. Um, that would be my message.
0: Well, I think that was an amazing message. If I were voting, I would definitely vote for you. Um, Penny, that you. <laughs> I that think, was brilliant. I think that was absolutely excellent. And on that note, I think that would be a really good point to end the podcast. I think
1: it's been an absolute
0: pleasure having you on. I've learned so much. And I hope everyone that's listening has learned a lot as well and know that they are not alone in whatever they're going through. Um, and I hope you, I hope your story can provide them hope that there is a light at the end of the tunnel um absolutely yeah thank you so much
1: it's my pleasure and uh and honestly it's been it's been so much fun being on your podcast so uh so thank you for having me and uh keep up the great work because it's really important what you're doing